Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. It tells us, And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. And then they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders from the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover for all the exiles, both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves, the sons of Israel who returned from exile, and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them, to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. And they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice, and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Father, God of Israel, Jesus, God of our hearts, thank you so much for your word. We thank You, Lord, and praise You that You saw fit to create in us the capacity for joy. The ability, Lord, to feel that that emotion, and yet, Lord, it's more than that, that that expression of of our very spirits, beyond happiness, that, that state of blessedness that is not, Lord, bound by circumstance, true joy. We thank You that You made it possible for us to experience that, to feel that, to know that. We praise You that You are the one who brings true joy into our hearts. Father, as we round out this section of Ezra this morning, I pray You would pour out Your joy. And show us, Father, especially those who are lacking joy in their lives, those who are having a hard time finding joy. Lord, would You restore it this morning? Would You restore it as only You can? And lead us to that place where as we walk, we can walk with the joy of Your coming kingdom, the joy of Your Son, Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they say absence makes the heart grow fonder. I disagree. (laughs) I I, I think at least I would change that a bit. I, I think that absence in a relationship tends to lead to apathy and indifference and disconnection. That's why when I see marriages in trouble, couples struggling, the last thing I recommend is separation. Because I'm not sure that that is the best thing that works. If there has to be a separation in that season, it needs to be one with ongoing connection. So absence, I'm not sure that it makes the heart grow fonder, but as our military personnel especially would attest to, I do believe distance makes the heart grow fonder. Distance makes the heart grow fonder. My heart grew quite fond of my wife this past week. 
She was down at the Women of Faith Conference in Oregon. She left Wednesday, just got back late last night, about 11.30 or so. But on Wednesday when she left, she was two or three hours down the freeway when she called and said, Do you miss me? <laughs> now, as a single dad, just starting off the starting line of a four-day marathon with staggering six-to-one odds. <laughs> Six kids, one dad. I answered, I sure do miss you, but probably not for the same reason you miss me. <laughs> at that point, I'm looking at my kids, and I know she's not there. And, and I, I'll just be honest with you, I have learned so much in four days. I didn't have a clue what she did. Not a clue. I know now. I've seen the job, and I don't want it. <laughs> but seriously, I hate to be apart from my wife. In 23 years of marriage, we're rarely apart for more than a day or so. And when we are, the distance, especially if I'm out of state, if she's out of state, if one of us are traveling, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And I wonder if that wasn't the case behind the exile. I wonder if that wasn't a reason. Maybe we could add to the list. We opened up Ezra and we said there are two specific reasons that the Lord sent the children of Israel into exile in Babylon. First of all, it was about remedy for idolatry. You remember that? They needed a remedy. That This people was idolatrous, chasing after every other god in addition to their own god. In addition to Yahweh, they were chasing all the gods of all the nations. And God said these people are sin sick. In their idolatry. They need a remedy. So he sends them to the fountainhead of idolatry, Babylon. He immerses them in idolatry and it so sickens them once they're there that when they return to the land, the remedy worked. They would no longer have an issue with idolatry. To this day, that's not a problem for the Jewish people. So a remedy. Secondly, we saw that it was about rest for the land. From the time the people entered the land to the time they went into Babylonian captivity, they did not keep... The Sabbath rest God called for 490 years. They didn't keep the Sabbath rest for the land. Every seven years, there was supposed to be a year off, a year of vacation. You don't have to farm, you don't have to plant, let the land lie fallow. You take that year off, you rest, I'll provide for you, the Lord said. Well, the people didn't do it. So they went into exile for 70 years, one year for every Sabbath that they skipped. But there is this third reason for the Jewish exile we may consider, a more personal reason for the Lord to set distance between Himself and His people. It was about relationship. Relationship with His people. The Lord knew that distance would make their hearts grow fonder. Truly, it did. Watch this. Psalm 137. Psalm 137. In verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Why was Jerusalem the psalmist's chief joy? Because it was in Jerusalem that God put His name. The city of Hashem, the name. He said, my name will be there. It was the one city in all the world. The Scriptures have shown us that God chose for Himself His capital, if you will. 
It was the city of His presence where His temple was and where He said, I will meet with you there. And so Jerusalem, especially to the heart of the Jew, Jerusalem was everything. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't consider Jerusalem above my chief joy. What is it that makes you most happy? What brings you the greatest joy in your life? To the Jew, especially the Jew in exile, it was Jerusalem. Distance truly makes the heart grow fonder. Their hearts had already gone absent from the Lord. And so the Lord said, then I'm going to add some distance to that, sending them 900 miles, leaving behind a devastated city, a decimated temple. Distance made the heart grow fonder. Why would that matter to God? Well, He's the one in Jeremiah 31.3 who said, The Lord appeared to Israel from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I am head over heels in love with you, God says of Israel, which is possibly strange. Why? Why pick this? What was it about Abraham and his offspring, Isaac and Jacob, that made God so passionately in love with this people? Especially after the way they rejected Him and rebelled against Him, the stiff-necked people. Why would He show such great love for them? I'll tell you why. It was so you and I could see how much great love the Father has to give. Because the great love He shows for Israel, He now has shown to you and to me in Jesus Christ. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You know what? You, could, you can co-opt that if you'd like. I think the Lord would be A-OK with you taking that verse and placing it in the archives of your mind to recognize and remember He has loved me with an everlasting love. He doesn't give up on me. He loves me. He doesn't give up on Israel. He loves Israel. It took three successive waves of attack and captivity. You realize that the Babylonian captivity was not a one-shot deal. Three different waves before finally Judah was ruined. The land stripped of its chief joy, Jerusalem. But amazingly, and catch this, after just 50 years, the exiles began to return. Well, wait a minute. Rick, you just said that it was after 70 years. It was supposed to be 70 years of of exile, right? So how can they return after 50 years? I'll explain that in just a moment. But a lot can happen in 50 years. A lot can happen in a few years. I recognize in my own life, I've been in my home four and a half years now, the the home that, that we built just over the hill here, and we are already so comfortably settled in that I can't find a single thing. Especially without Cheryl here. I don't know how many times I was texting her, where are the scissors? You know, where are the paper clips? You know, where's the milk? I, I don't know. Where do we keep these things? But in 536 BC, the first group of exiles under Zerubbabel and, and Yeshua, they, re, they left Babylon and they returned to the land. 49,897 exiles left, think about this, new homes, jobs family, friends, they left them there in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. I mean, how long does it take you to settle into a place? They were there 50 years. Not to mention the fact that Babylon, (laughs) Babylon was not a bad place to be. When you think about exile and captivity, they were not in prison. They They were drawn into culture. It was, it was the purpose of Nebuchadnezzar as he conquered these lands to bring people in and make them a part of Babylonian culture. We see that with Daniel and his friends in the book of Daniel. He changed their names. 
He, he taught them a new language. He taught them all about the government. He raised them up in his own government. Why? Because he was trying... You know, resistance is futile. You can see Nebuchadnezzar coming in a big square you know, spaceship. Resistance is futile. Because he would draw the people in and make them Babylonian. Fifty years of this, the Jewish people had been there. And Babylon, gang, this captivity was on the, the splendor of the banks of the Euphrates. This was a beautiful, beautiful place known for uh, the wondrous hanging gardens of Babylon. In that day, one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. Have you seen there? There are artist renderings of it based on historical accounts. It was absolutely stunning. And let me tell you, it was more than just gardens. It was like a river walk. Underneath these gardens were shops and restaurants, places people could go and, and hang out. A beautiful place just to be. Its fashion industry was among the best, world-renowned. In fact, all the way back in Joshua, as the people came into the land, remember they, they conquered Jericho, that was the first city they conquered, and the Lord said, don't take any spoil on this one, spoil's mine. Don't anybody take anything. Do you remember one, one guy did? Oh, my aching, breaking heart. He aching. Goes in, and he, he steals a few things, and he buries them, hides them under his tent. You know what one of those things was? Joshua 7.21 tells us it was a beautiful mantle from Shinar, Babylon. A beautiful Babylonian robe was one of the things that was so exquisite. There in Jericho that that Achan took and stole it for himself. As for trade and wealth, that's where you go. It was the heart of the Persian Empire. So to live there for 50 years, to become a part of culture, you've got the hanging gardens, you've got the, the magnificent fashion industry, and beyond that you've got trade, wealth, culture. Oh, Culture was amazing in Babylon. It was the crossroads of history. All the way back to the days of Babel. Everybody had been to Babylon at some time or another. And so you could learn and and you could be enlightened and illuminated with all the culture that was there. After all, well, just under 50,000 went back. Two million stayed. That's an astounding number. They didn't all go back. Most of the Jewish people chose to stay in Babylon. Going back would not have been the easy choice. So what was it that caused this group of exiles to go back? Their city destroyed, the temple gone, the land under rule from afar. You've got the comparison of beautiful Babylon and trash Judah. Why go back? Because of a joy remembered. Joy remembered. Psalm 136 again, 137 verse 6. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. There's something in this tenacious people that says, Ah, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. And even throughout all the diaspora of the last 2,000 years, the Jewish people have always remembered their Jerusalem. But here's something amazing in our, in our text this morning. Something happens here. Something emerges as a profound experience for this roughly 50,000 exiles who do return. Joy remembered becomes finally joy restored. Joy is flowing now in Jerusalem. I've told you that the book of Ezra you can divide into two parts. Chapters 1 through 6 is part 1. The return of Zerubbabel and Yeshua to the land with the first group of exiles. 
Then, chapter 7 through 10, the rest of the book is the return of Ezra with another, the second group of exiles will come to the land. So this is a perfect kind of rounding out to the first half. We end in joy and celebration and happiness there in Jerusalem. Three things to jot down about the joy that is flowing in Jerusalem. Number one, there is joy in the house of the Lord. Joy in the house of the Lord. Verse 16 again says that they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. You may recall the foundation of this second temple. The foundation was laid with both shouts of joy and weeping. The young people were excited. The the older guys were, were saddened at what they saw. It just didn't stack up to the old temple. But now they're all together and there is great joy in the house of the Lord. The psalmist would say in Psalm 84 verse 1, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself. In that way, the barn here is very much like the temple. Where she may lay her young, even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And in verse 10 of Psalm 84, he writes, A day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Joy in the house of the Lord. By the way, did you notice when the house of the Lord was completed? When was the house completed? It was 70 years after the destruction of the first temple. There's your 70 years of captivity. But the Lord needed to send some people back a little bit early to begin the preparation of the relaying of the foundation and the building of the temple. But from the fall of the first temple to the building of the second one was the 70 years God required for the captivity. He measures the exile from temple to temple. And verse 15 tells us specifically, look down at that, it was on the third day of the month of Adar. The third day. Good things tend to happen on the third day, don't they? What else happened on the third day? Christ rose from the dead. On the evening of the third day following Jesus' crucifixion, He stood among the apostles in the flesh. And He said to them, Luke 24:44, These are My words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And He said to them, Thus it was written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. By the way, it's the third day of the month of Adar. That word Adar in the Hebrew, it means glorious. Third day of the glorious month was when the second temple was finished. And the third day was a glorious day when Christ, when His temple had been broken and rebuilt again in three days. But there's something else interesting about this whole third day concept. Another verse, perhaps you've heard it. A prophecy about a third day. Hosea chapter 6 verse 1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. This is the, the Jewish people. And they're crying out. This literally is a quote of something that is said by Jewish people A prophecy of something that's coming. Listen to this. They say, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. And so this verse, you can say, wow, it talks about a raising up on a third day. And so you can make kind of an allusion to prophecy, maybe to the the resurrection of Jesus. But I don't believe that's what it's talking about there. 
They say again, listen to this, He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Well, 2,000 years ago, the people were torn from the land again. The second temple destroyed. Beyond that, they were finally driven out of the land. And they entered into the worst diaspora, or diaspora, the word just means dispersion. The worst dispersion in the history of Israel dispersed throughout all the world. Not just to Babylon, but everywhere, driven out. Over a worldwide distance of nearly 1,900 years. For two days, He has torn us. Well, if a, if a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, two years, two thousand years. And then in the third day, He will raise us up again. The Bible prophesies promises of a millennial kingdom, promises of a third day, a thousand year reign of Christ. Well, that means that we are on the verge of the third day. Now, I mention that mainly to say that on that day there will be joy in the house of the Lord again. Amen? I mean, if, if you have, if you can think about your chief joy, and even the Jewish person thinking about their chief joy, it's, it's far beyond Jerusalem. The chief joy is being in the presence of the Lord. The chief joy, not, not being in the presence even as we are right now. And we can be in His presence spiritually, and we can have wonderful times where we are, are devoted to Him, and praying to Him, and caught up in Him. But as long as we're here, gang, there's still a distance. And that distance will be fully removed and we will be in the house of the Lord. Before the Lord, there will be joy in the house of the Lord on that day. And so on on this day, the the third day of the month of Adar, there was joy in the house of the Lord. Secondly, five weeks later, they shared joy at the table of the Lord. Verse 19 says, The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th of the first month. The priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were pure. They slaughtered the Passover lamb. The word lamb there is inserted, but that, that's the intention there, the Passover lamb for all the exiles. Both for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves, the sons of Israel who had returned from exile, all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them, to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. Joy at the table of the Lord. As soon as the temple was rebuilt, they could then celebrate Passover again. Because without the temple of the Lord, Passover, it really can't be celebrated. Well, Rick, it's it's been celebrated for a long time, yeah. Well, it it has. I hate to say it, but gang, every Passover since 70 A.D. has been void of the centerpiece of sacrifice, which is required for the Passover. It's required. That's what Passover is all about, is the blood of the Lamb. The meal is just a a, a picture or a reminder of that, but it's the blood of the Lamb. You know that when the people left Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. Slaughter for each house a lamb. Take the blood, put it on the lintel and the doorpost, and I will pass over you, the Lord said. It was all about the sacrifice. You remove the sacrifice and suddenly Passover. And we're, we're, by the way, we're going to celebrate Passover in March of this year. Looking forward to that, or or whenever Passover is. We're going to have an actual Passover Seder meal and and learn about it some more and celebrate that together. It'll be a lot of fun. But I'm telling you, we have something to celebrate because we have a lamb sacrificed. Without the lamb sacrificed, it's nothing but, well, a picture, I guess. Even today, every Jewish Passover plate holds the shank bone of a lamb, which is just to remind them of the Passover sacrifice. But no sacrifice is actually made. 
And without the temple, you can't make the sacrifice. It has to happen there at the temple. Well, the temple is rebuilt. And so the people are able to sacrifice with great joy and to experience the Passover again. 1 Corinthians 5.7 tells us Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. We have a sacrifice. We have a lamb. We have a reason that we can celebrate the passing over of our sinful lives. And now, not just every 14th of Nisan, but every first day of the week as we come together, we celebrate this. That and, and among other times. Communion, we come to the table of the Lord. That's why I mentioned this morning earlier. It is a time of celebration and joy. Now, you may come to the table of the Lord and you may have had a bad week and you may have had a sinful week and you may have had a struggling week and so you bow your head and you just feel lousy. And you just feel unclean. Let me tell you that while we are called to examine ourselves at the Lord's table, the Lord's table itself is a place of joy. It is a reminder that in our uncleanness there is a blood that cleanses us. And so when you come to the table, it's not about guilt. Jesus didn't take Passover, turn it into what we call the Lord's Supper so that we would be miserable every time we take it. He did it so we would have a reminder of joy. A proclamation not only of the death that He died for us, but the life that He lives and that He's coming again. And it is supposed to be a joyful thing, a wonderful thing. Joy at the table of the Lord. Well, they had joy in the house of the Lord. They had joy at the table of the Lord. And finally, number three, they had joy among the people of the Lord. They were thrilled to be together. Look at verse 21 again. It tells us the sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel. Well, they ate the Passover. They, going on, observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That begins immediately after Passover. Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with joy. For the Lord had caused them to rejoice. There is an unmistakable joy in the gathering together of like-minded, like-hearted, like-spirited people. Isn't there? I mean, when you get to... Isn't Isn't it cool when, say, you're out on a business trip and you run into someone and you're talking and all of a sudden you find out there's a Christian. What happens to your heart? Really? Oh, cool. And you start talking. Yeah. And you find out they're one of those weird denominations and you stop talking and you go your, your way. No. No, just the knowledge that someone else claims Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Praise God. There is joy in that. There's a wonder in that. There's an excitement in that for us. There is joy among the people of the Lord. Now, they celebrate here the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's a picture of, of a removal of sin. Unleavened, to take the leaven out of the bread, to completely remove the leaven, is a picture that we've now had Passover. Sin has been removed, so we're going to celebrate that for seven more days. And again, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, well, it points to Jesus, just like Passover does. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out, you know, I pause there. I always tell my kids this, and Corey just gets sick of hearing this, and I've said it so many times, but, you know, they'll be talking about a movie or a video game or something and say, well, there's just a little language in it. And I say, great, you go ahead and play. I'm going to go upstairs and bake some brownies and put just a little bit of dog poop in it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just a little, you know? And then I come to this verse. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole dump, lump, dump of dough? That's good. He goes on. He says, <laughs> he says, clean out the old 
leaven, so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Did you hear that? If you're in Christ Jesus, you are unleavened. I mean, that's astounding. You no longer have sin in control of your life. You are an unleavened person before the Lord God. Paul says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the exiles come back and we see joy in the house of the Lord. We see joy at the table of the Lord. We see joy among the people of the Lord as they celebrate these feasts together. Truly, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And they are back. And they are joyful. Interesting. Historical, accurate, you know, truth. This is what happened. I've been thinking about this all week. This has been one of those odd uh, study preparation times for me simply because I was home with the kids that I had maybe a half hour here to study or 45 minutes there to study or 10 minutes here before I hear, Dad! Okay. (laughs) You know. And I actually got back and, and wasn't sure where this was going until uh, I got home after dropping Corey off at work yesterday morning. I got home at 5 a.m. on a Saturday. I mean, do you feel my pain? <laughs> and I couldn't go back to sleep, and so I went and I started praying about this and studying it and looking over it. And, and I think the Lord has a message for us here. I think He has something He wants us truly to hear. Not just the history. I mean, wonderful, there was joy in the house of the Lord and the table of the Lord and among the people of the Lord. That's all great, that's well and good. Hey, good for you, glad you guys are back. What's chapter 7 say? No, it's much more than that. The psalmist in Psalm 122, verse 1 said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. I was glad. I was glad. I was excited about going to church. Do you find joy in the house of the Lord? Do you find joy at the table of the Lord? Do you find joy among the people of the Lord? I mean, really? Does coming to the house feel more like going through the motions for you? Now, don't answer that out loud. Be honest with yourself. Where are you at with this right now? Is getting out of bed on a Sunday morning a drudgery? Making it here maybe on a, on a Wednesday night. And I, and I don't want to make this about church attendance. I'm talking about going where God is. Going to where He's doing something. Do you, do you find it's like, come on, we got to do this. Come on, get the kids in the car. Come on, let's go. Does, does the table, when, when we share communion together, does it start to resemble ritual more than remembrance? Oh yeah, we do that again. He'll be done in a few minutes and then we can get on with the Bible study. Is fellowship with other believers more taxing than it is joyful? I want to tell you something that breaks my heart. There's a couple of ladies in Anacortes who have started a thing called Christian Connections. Maybe you've heard about it. In fact, I encourage you to go to the website, christianconnections.org. You know what their whole purpose, mission, focus is? Connecting churches. Connecting Christians. They just want to be a, a resource in this area to say, hey, if you want to find out, some some church over here is having a great speaker come in. You want to find out about that, you can check the website and and you can go. And these two ladies have been so shunned in the Christian community, it's, it's just amazing. 
because they're trying to connect across the board. You know, we, we sat down, um, Jeff D'Angelo and I had a meeting with them. Because they were going to put us on the website, and, and, you know, I mean, trying to be a discerning pastor, I want to know what are you about, and we sat down and we talked and shared and had a wonderful time together. And I told them something that I believe from day one, though in my flesh sometimes it's not always easy, and that's that we call ourselves a Bridge Christian Fellowship because we're just one fellowship in the larger church of, of Jesus. We're just one gathering. We gather here this morning. You know that our brothers and sisters in Christ are gathering all over the Skagit Valley and all among the islands this morning? Just because they're not here doesn't make them any less people of Jesus. Now, I admit, as a pastor, sometimes you find yourself getting territorial. You went to that church. (laughs) What am I breaking my back for? You know? But are we not all children of God? And yet, fellowship with other believers, sometimes it becomes a tug of war, becomes a, you know, uh, don't know if I trust you, don't know if I like what you're doing while your church building's ugly, you know, I just don't want to be connected. Okay, if you're in this place at all, whether it's just being there in church, in worship on a Sunday, or finding joy at the table, or joy among His people, listen to me, maybe you need some distance. Maybe you need a little distance. Now, absence is not the key. But absence, unfortunately, is often what people choose. I'm not feeling it, so I'm not going. I I just don't feel like going to church. Who cares how you feel? For one thing, let me remind you, you don't go to worship for yourself. You know, we go to worship for the Lord. I did not feel like getting up this morning. I was a little pooped. But I sure am glad I'm here. Absence has a way of making us apathetic. I didn't go last week. I'm not going to go this week. How many? Six months? It's been six months. Well, we'll get back there eventually. Next thing you know, you're indifferent. Disconnected to the things of the Lord. Sadly, when people get into a spiritual funk, they will choose absence from the house or absence from the table or absence from the people of the Lord and that only exacerbates the problem. It only makes it worse. It does not help you draw near to the Lord. I have seen time off turn into exile more times than I wish to remember. We're just taking a break. When I hear that as a pastor, the first thought that comes to my mind is, we may never see him again. Absence will not help. However, distance makes the heart grow fonder. If you're having trouble finding joy in the house of the Lord, at the table, with the people of the Lord, then we need to distance ourselves in a couple of ways. Number one, distance from the comfort of the world. As we saw earlier, well over 2 million Jewish people were deported to Babylon. Less than 50,000 initially chose to go back to Judea. Why? They settled. They settled for the comfort of Babylon. It was easier to stay in exile, and it is always that way. The trip is tough, the temple is trashed, but Babylon is home now, so let's just stay here. Who would want to go back to Judah anyway? Well, 49,897 did. Check this out. Verse 16 again tells us that they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Who did? Who, Who celebrated? Look at verse 16. Who does it say celebrated there? What's the word that's used? The exiles. The exiles celebrated at the house of the Lord. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
They're exiles. That, that, that word exiles, it's Bengaluth in the Hebrew. Bengaluth, which literally means sons of removal or departing. Has anyone ever wondered why, now that they're back in the land, they're still called exiles? I would think they'd only be exiles when they were in Babylon, but they're still called exiles now that they're back in Jerusalem. Why is that? Because exiles also mean sons of departing, and they had departed Babylon. They were now exiles from Babylon. We are called to be exiles from the world, to distance ourselves from the comforts of the world. They departed to Babylon. They removed themselves from the nations back to the Lord. Their joy overrode their comfort. They saw something better than the comfort of Babylon. Do you see something better in Jesus Christ than even the comfort of the world? I think we we lose sight of this, that the comforts of Babylon pale in comparison to the joy of the Lord. But you've got to want it. You've got to want it. There must be something in Jesus that you want more than the creature comforts of this world. Jesus says in, in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And He says, If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with Me. And that verse is wrongly used as a verse for evangelism. It is not talking about Jesus knocking on the heart of an unbeliever. He is knocking at the door of the church in Revelation 3.20. I am knocking on your heart. Do you want to have dinner together? Want to dine with me? And yet we're more into comfort foods. And we get so filled up on comfort foods that by the time Jesus comes knocking, we're full. Oh, thanks, Lord. Maybe next week we'll get back to you. Comfort food. Boy, I cannot say that word without thinking of the Catella Deli. Hmm. Monte Cristo sandwich. It's like this big. Have you seen a Monte Cristo? I mean, this thing was huge. The bread and, and the turkey and the ham and the cheese. And then they dip it in French toast batter and fry it up. Oh. Oh, and they sprinkle powdered sugar on it and they give you a side of raspberry jelly and you just... Oh, so good. And the Catella Deli made it better than anybody I have ever... I've, Best Monte Cristo. If you're ever in Southern California, Anaheim area, Garden Grove, go to the Catella Deli and get a Monte Cristo. Make a note of that. In your, in your Bible notes, right there, because it's important. <laughs> they made French fries. I mean, my mouth waters to think about the French fries at the Catella Deli. Oh, so good. And there are often times, and I think I've shared with at least a Wednesday night crowd here before, that on Wednesdays after Bible study, it'd be 9 or 9.30, and I'd be leaving the church there in Anaheim. And I was, you know, our, the church was here and our house was about five minutes away and the Catella Deli was down in Garden Grove about, you know, 45 minutes, you know, not that far, half hour away. And I'd be about halfway home and I would just make a left turn and I'd call Cheryl, I'm going. <laughs> She's like, bring it back. So I'd get it and we'd bring it home. And almost every Wednesday night we got into this pattern of comfort food. Oh, it was so good. And then they made this chocolate eclair. <laughs> it was like that big. And typically I wouldn't eat Thursday or Friday because I was so full from this stuff. But gang, listen, if we're, so, if we're stuffing our spirits full of the comfort of the world, Jesus comes along and says, hey, you want to dine together? No thanks, Lord. If we honestly desire the joy of Christ, we've got to start putting some distance between ourselves and the world. Between ourselves and our comfort. Russ, what is the name of the young lady in Africa? You sent me the, the video. 
Do you remember her name? Um, Kate. Kate. Ask Russ about it. Do you still have it on your computer? you got to see this. Kate is 20 years old. How many kids? She's got 14 kids in an orphanage she started in Africa. She's 20. I've been to Ghana. It's not comfortable. It's hot. It's dusty. It's different. Kate's 20 years old. She is obviously distancing herself from the comfort of the world to do the ministry of the Lord. Talk to us. You've got to see this video. It's amazing. What are you comfortable with right now? And maybe that's a good place to start. What are you comfortable with? What are you comfortable watching? Or reading? Or listening to? Do you find yourself laughing even at offensive jokes? Or enjoying crude talk? Or maybe even dismissing sordid gossip? as if That's just kind of the way of it. We're all Christian. You know, winking the eye at these things. Comfort, gang, I believe is sucking the energy out of the people of God, at least in America today. Why do we not see the kingdom spreading? Because we are so comfortable. Why would we need the Spirit of God in our lives to change us and to change the world around us if we're so comfortable? And then we blame the church, (laughs) which is us. That's what I love when people say, it's the church's fault. You a Christian? Yeah. Yes, it's your fault. (laughs) Because you are the church. It's not some entity over here. It is us. And we blame the church and we wonder where the joy has gone. Paul just gets done saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Philippians 4.4 And in that same context, he goes on to tell you how. He says in Philippians 4.8 Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We need distance from the comfort of the world. Which brings me to another place of captivity. Another more alluring region than even comfort and that is we need distance from the culture of the nations. Distance from the culture. Down there in verse 21 there's a word that stands out. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves. Separated. How did the people, you remember this from last week, how did the people accomplish building the temple? With help from outsiders? No. By themselves they had uncompromising separation. They said, we will not use the culture around us to accomplish our tasks. We are different. We are to be separate. And so they separated themselves, Ezra chapter 4. They distanced themselves even from the nations, from the help that was offered. Separating themselves from the nations to the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are, are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. At a time when the church is trying to be so much like the world, it scares me. Be separate. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I'll be a father to you and you'll be sons and daughters to me and I just get this picture of a dad bouncing the children on his lap and playing Legos and on the floor and having a good time with an everlasting energy that this dad does not have. (laughs) 
Gang, we live in a country that loves the culture of nations. We are so like Babylon. <laughs> we got our fashion industry, we got our hanging gardens, we have our river walks and our places, our malls and our places to go and hang out. And we got our culture that is that is so multicultural and people think the more Eastern mysticism I get into, the more enlightened I am. The more I pull in the gods or the idols or the things of other culture, the more, more perspective I have in this world. You know, European labels sell. Have you read the label of your shampoo bottle lately? Do we need in four languages, lather, rinse, repeat? I mean, how many languages do we need that in? And it's all to appear continental and international and enlightened and it's the fast track of preparation for a global government and a one world anything goes religion. That's where it's headed. Meanwhile, look around. People are less and less genuinely joyful. We have it all in Babylon. Where's the joy? You know where the joy is. It's in the house of the Lord. It's at the table of the Lord. It's with the people of the Lord. It is in the presence of the Lord. He says, come out from their midst and be separate. And that word separate, the Hebrew word for separated, badal, means to sever all ties. It's not just you stay there and I'll call you when I need you. I'll check in with you when it matters, when it's important for me. It's to cut off all ties. Why do we want to do this? Because joy in the Lord increases as the distance we put between ours and Babylon, ourselves and Babylon increases. The more distance we put between ourselves and the world and the cultures and the comfort, the greater our joy in the Lord, the closer to Him we are. Listen, I find this interesting. Last week we were talking about compassion without compromise. An uncompromising walk with Jesus. This week we're talking about distancing ourselves from comfort and from the culture of the world. Now, I'm not smart enough to design sermon series. I just don't do that. We just are going through the Word here. And this is where we landed this morning. But do you think maybe God is trying to say something to us? you think possibly in this day and in this age, the Lord is trying to get a message out to His people that says, No more compromise. Stop it. You need to start distancing yourselves from culture and comfort and the things of this world. Not, not from hearts. Don't get me wrong. Do not distance yourselves from the hearts of people who are lost because they need to hear from Jesus and they need to see the joy. But distancing ourselves from all the stuff of culture that would draw us down. That's what we're talking about. Might the Lord be truly concerned about our affections? Might He truly want the fondness of our hearts? Some might say, well, does He just selfishly want all our attention? Last thing, look at John chapter 15. John chapter 15. That wonderful section of Jesus' teaching where through chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17 it's just Jesus talking. It's the night of His betrayals, which astounds me. He is about to be crucified. He knows it and He gives us the greatest teaching, the longest section of teaching by Jesus in the Scripture. And He says in John chapter 15, please don't miss this. 
verse 9, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. What did, what did the Lord say about Israel? I have loved you with an everlasting love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Come out and be separate. Let's distance ourselves from these things. Let's be uncompromising in our faith. And our joy will be full in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father. Your words at the same time exhilarate and frighten me. Because I recognize there are so many things I'm comfortable with in this world. There's so much culture that I find fascinating and drawn to. And Father, for a brief moment this morning, I believe You open our eyes to see that we are living in exile here. And that we are called to be a people who distance ourselves, who depart from, who are exiles from the world. Foreigners in this land. Sojourners, Lord. We are not to... to build our houses and our buildings were to pitch tents for a short period of time until you call us home. May we remember, Lord, that our chief joy is Jesus Christ. And with that remembrance, might we find joy in the house of the Lord, joy when we come to worship, and excitement and enthusiasm to be together as the people of the Lord, to gather around your table and recognize the source of our salvation. May we not be absent-minded, but instead distance ourselves from the world. Lord, I recognize this is not an evangelistic message. This is a message to people of faith who have already trusted themselves to You. But but Father, I pray that in this, whether this hour or next, someone will, will hear this who maybe doesn't know You, who is struggling to find joy, and, and it will turn on a light in their hearts. But Father, I... I also just pray for Your people. There are many of us struggling with joy. Many here who find themselves in the doldrums of life just making it from one day to the next. Father, would You help us to distance ourselves from the things that steal our joy that we might once again be with You. And ultimately, Jesus, that our joy would be full and complete. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.